2 Timothy chapter 4 and from verse 9. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he's helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first offence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, and I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you, and so do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Thank you, Murray. There are some passages when you are called to read them are less easy than others. So well done. Thank you. Let me pray as we look at this passage. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that my words might honour you, that we might know the joy of our salvation and the richness of our fellowship together. Amen. One of the things I love, particularly about team sport, is that sense of common struggle. You know, you're in it together. You know, for better or worse, you've got a common purpose, you know, to get to the end, usually with a ball. And if you win, you celebrate it together. And if you lose, well, no one likes losing, but at least you've got company when you lose and you share the burden of losing. And I think that that is true. It's true for sporting teams. I think it's also true for churches. It's usually a little less violent, uh, but we have a common cause as we seek to love our Lord and love each other and love our neighbour as ourselves. And as much as we love winning sport and love a good plastic trophy, our goal as Christians is far, far infinitely more significant. So from last week, there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have called, who have longed for his appearing. Now, the good news of the gospel really is good news. It's good for today, it's good for eternity, and it completely shapes who we are and how we live. And it shapes our commitment to one another. We are the body of Christ. And when one part of the body celebrates, we all celebrate. And if one part of the body grieves, then we all grieve. That's the beauty and the richness of church. But with that sort of emotional commitment and with eternity at stake, 
it comes with all sorts of risks because we're deeply invested and we're also sinful. And that means inevitably we are going to let one another down. And I think that hurt and that disappointment is even worse in a church context because we feel and we expect more from one another. We're supposed to be imitators of Christ. You know, more than that, uh, we are transformed by God's Spirit who's shaping and moulding our character. And so it should be self-evident and it should be good and it should be abundant, you know, like a fruit on a tree. But that's not always our experience. And that doesn't just impact how we then relate with one another. It can also leave us disillusioned with God. And we turn our back on God thinking that we're punishing God, but in reality we're just punishing ourselves. In our passage today we get a sense of all of that complexity, but also a way forward because ultimately our strength doesn't come from the approval and the affirmation of other people, even brothers and sisters in Christ. Our strength comes from the Lord. And when we get that right, it then frees us up to love one another more. So let's have a look at this passage. And it's a bit of a word of warning. Uh, things are going to get worse before they get better. Okay, so it's going to be a little depressing here. But let's get into our passage where he starts off, Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Now, that's a pretty negative assessment on Demas. Uh, In the previous letters, Paul has written quite warmly about Demas as a fellow worker, but he's now deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica. And what's motivated that decision, looking at the passage, is his love for the world. Now, this isn't simply a love for life. It's loving the values of the world. It's loving the pleasures of the world at the expense of loving God. So we don't really quite know whether Paul is saying that Demas has abandoned his faith altogether or his decision to go to Thessalonica is a worldly sinful decision but not a faith-defining decision. As a a glimmer of hope, the fact that he's listed with other gospel workers seems to suggest that his decision was sinful but not fatal and it might even suggest that he's still serving in Thessalonica. So perhaps to use ministers as a little example of what this might look like, it might be the equivalent of a minister choosing to work in a church because they like the area or they like the good schools or it's close to family. Now, those things aren't bad, but when we say to God, I want to serve you in a way that's convenient for me, then we really need to go back and rethink our motivation. And Shell Harbour is a beautiful place to live. It's a beautiful place to serve. But if I serve here because it's beautiful, that's a problem. You know, we all struggle with our own temptations to love the world. But the focus in this passage isn't so much on our temptation, but how we deal with the disappointment of seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ make those love the world kind of decisions. And there's a sense of disappointment and even desertion because, you know, we thought we were in this together. We were making sacrifices, they were making sacrifices, we're fighting the good fight, but then they seem to have now have different priorities. And that 
hurts and that can disappoint. Now, this isn't about money, but money is often part of it. And the problem isn't having it. Uh, The problem is the way that we prioritise it. So Paul writes in 1 Timothy a little bit about money that I think is helpful for us and provides some perspective and wisdom. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. That's a pretty good picture, isn't it? Pretty good challenge. Uh, It's not that money's bad, but we need to use it well and wisely. So how do we respond when we feel others are making worldly choices? I think for starters, we need to start recognising the log in our own eye. Uh, before we see the speck in someone else's. Uh, But there are times when it is true. We make selfish, worldly choices. Uh, Godly people we love and respect and admire will also make worldly choices. And if we expect things to be different, then over time we'll become increasingly bitter towards their success and their comfort. And I think increasingly disillusioned with us serving Christ. Now, expecting people to sin is not the same as accepting sin. We keep pointing people to Christ, we keep speaking God's word into their life, we keep encouraging and rebuking and challenging, and we do it all with great patience. And we pray that others might have the same grace to us, that they might speak God's word to us and challenge us when we're getting entangled in the world, and that we might have ears to hear. You know, so often, I think when we read a passage like this, we want to posture ourselves with Paul, but I think more often, we're like Demas. And so we need to hear that challenge and perhaps need to hear the rebuke. So if Demas is more about sin and disappointment, then we've got Alexander, the metal worker, uh, who is just plain dangerous. And so the moral here is just don't trust metal workers. Okay, just not safe. Uh, there might be another lesson there somewhere. But to go back to the passage, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. And as we read Paul's experience, it teaches us again to expect opposition. Uh, But this isn't opposition from the world. Uh, This opposition is from someone who at one point claimed to be a follower of Christ. And so it comes with a real sense of grief and betrayal. Most likely the Alexander he's talking about is the same Alexander in his first letter where he says to Timothy, fight the battle well, hold on to the faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regards to their faith. Amongst them is Hymenaeus and Alexander. Now, no one likes to be attacked. No one likes to feel betrayed by someone we know and trust and respect. It's emotionally confronting, but it's also faith confronting. Because, you know, if it's someone who we do respect, and if they've got a compelling voice and they speak it loud and they speak it often then it's easy to be persuaded by it. It's tempted to be persuaded by it. And certainly we're often persuaded, not just by the message, but by their sense of conviction. And so we need to be prepared. And again, sadly, 
uh, we shouldn't be too surprised. So there's going to be disappointment, uh, there may well be betrayal, and at times we're going to feel abandoned. And for Paul, he feels this most deeply at his first trial. At my first defence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. Now, again, we don't know why people abandoned Paul in this moment, but as we read the whole letter, there's most likely two driving motivations. Uh, the first is shame. Uh, Paul, is, Paul knows his imprisonment has left him disgraced in the eyes of some Christians, and now for them they want to distance themselves from Paul. And so earlier in this letter, we get a glimpse of that when he says, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And so shame's part of it, but in this verse, I think we also get a glimpse of the other motivation, which is fear. They're afraid that their commitment to Christ and their association with Paul is going to end up with them suffering the same fate. And right now, he's in prison and potentially facing, facing death. You know, it's a little bit like me, you know, walking around the corner and seeing someone getting beaten up. You know, I know in that moment the right thing to do is to intervene and try to protect that person. I also know that in that process I'm probably going to get beaten up. And so the temptation, all this goes through your mind in, in sort of a half a second, doesn't it? And then you justify why you really shouldn't get involved. But, but that's the temptation. You see it, you know what you should do, but in the moment... It just feels too much. And that's perhaps what has gone on here. And for Paul, not turning up isn't just about being ashamed of Paul and deserting him. It potentially reflects a much more significant issue, which is to be ashamed of Christ. So in the words of Jesus, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So Paul feels the weakness of those who have deserted him, but his response isn't bitterness. He doesn't say, you know, I hope they get what they deserve. He responds with compassion. May it not be held against them. Uh, That is not an easy response when we feel abandoned or betrayed, Uh, but that's the example we have. It's the example we have in Christ but it's also the example modelled here by Paul. And he can say it because his strength and his conviction, sense of identity and value doesn't come from his brothers and sisters in Christ as much as he loves them. It comes from God. Everyone has deserted him, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly realm. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. When people stop doing ministry or leave church, it's rarely about busyness and the size of the role. And it's almost always about relationships and conflict and expectation. So if we're looking to one another for our primary source of strength, then we will inevitably be disappointed and we have placed a burden on one another that we simply cannot bear. We're trying to take on God's role for ourselves. Now, God has created us as relational people. I don't want to diminish the importance of our relationships together, 
But I do want to elevate even more the significance of our relationship with Christ. He is the foundation on which everything else is built. And we see that in the life of Paul. You know, God has given Paul the strength to trust him and to persevere through disappointment and betrayal and abandonment from within his Christian community. And he can do that because his source of strength is Christ. When Paul says, I was delivered from the lion's mouth, it might have been literal, uh, and certainly in the time of Nero, plenty of Christians were thrown to the lions. Uh, But more likely, he's talking metaphorically, and when he talks about those who are persecuting him. And there's actually quite a few allusions, I've only picked up one here, to Psalm 22, which is traditionally... Uh, you know, about, we read it, about Christ, the Messiah, and as Paul associating himself with that suffering. And he says in Psalm 22, May many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. And we get a little bit of what that looks like in real life for Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Uh, this is a great snapshot of persecution and suffering. Uh, Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. That's a pretty amazing picture, isn't it, of perseverance? You know, his commitment to Christ has cost him dearly. You know, often when we suffer, we very quickly become, you know, disillusioned. You know, why is God letting this happen to me? Uh, But for Paul, he sees it as a privilege and an honour to share in the suffering of Christ. And as he shares in that suffering, God has worked through him, fulfilling his plans for the Lordship of Christ to be known to not just Israel, but to all nations. And he's confident that God will continue to hold on to him. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to the heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. We often want rescue to mean that God will stop bad things happening to me. You know, that our Christian-hating co-worker uh, might have a change of heart, you know, or at very least a change of job. You know, we hope that in other parts of the world where we see really profound, you know, persecution and oppression, even to the point of death, that God might intervene and stop that from happening. And often we're quite confronted, not so much by the evil of humanity, but the fact that God isn't willing to intervene or doesn't intervene. And that can sometimes bring us to a point of even questioning our faith. You know, if God isn't intervening in this grave injustice in the world, then maybe God isn't there at all. And certainly our world wants to speak into that, doesn't it? The world wants to say there is no God, there is no greater meaning to life, there is no such thing as objective right and wrong. And so all that's left is me and me finding happiness for me. And so we're confronted by the world... Uh, and we feel a temptation of the world. And actually, that's the greater evil attack. That's really the greater threat. It's not even persecution. It's that persecution might drive us away from our commitment to Christ. 
that we might stop recognising that even in our suffering, that Christ walks with us and he is holding on to us. But Paul is confident that whatever persecution or temptation or disappointment or betrayal comes his way, God will walk with him and God will strengthen him and God will bring him safely home. And that's our experience, isn't it? You know, we've seen in Jesus' death on the cross that his death is sufficient for our sin, that he has secured our salvation. And then he doesn't just leave us sort of clinging on to our salvation for dear life. You know, okay, you gave it to me, now it's got to hold on and be good enough and see if I can get to the end. Now, even then, he holds on to us. I was trying to work out an appropriate illustration. I've gone with roller coasters. Okay, so I do quite like a good roller coaster. Uh, this is Rivals at Movie World. Uh, it's awesome. I love it. It's straight down. It's fantastic. But the thing with a roller coaster, you know, for the roller coasters, all the ups and downs of life, and you know, you get round and round, you know, you really want that harness. You know, when you sit in that roller coaster and that harness comes down and it is rock solid, and you're very happy that it's rock solid, and you know, you're a little bit claustrophobic, but that's okay. Uh, and it's a bit like that. You know, we, we think in, in life that it's, you know, often about us hang, hanging on. Uh, and life does get messy and, and sometimes scary. But Christ holds on to us uh, and our hope is secure. And Christ who has saved us is Christ who will bring us home. To paraphrase slightly Paul's words in the book of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, Paul has set up this sort of contrast between the faithlessness of people and the faithfulness of God. But that doesn't mean he's not thankful for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, we get a, a glimpse of that thankfulness in this brief you know, description of what's been going on. Faithful co-workers like Titus and Luke and Mark and Priscilla and Aquila who are serving in Ephesus. Which you notice I picked all the names which are easy to say. Uh, <laughs> But you, you get a picture, don't you? That, that even though at times he feels profoundly alone, uh, actually he's not completely alone. You know, God is our unmovable foundation. But once we recognise that, once we get our strength from him, uh, then he helps us to see all the other good things around us and to appreciate our brothers and sisters in Christ and to appreciate their love and support and that working together and striving together for the sake of the gospel. And one of the things I've loved about this passage is it's realistic about church life and relationships. And for a passage that on initial reading doesn't sound that profound, you read it and you go, that's a nice passage. But as you read it more, you recognise that actually it holds a lot of the keys to a healthy church. You know, it realigns our expectation of one another. We are sinful and we are going to disappoint. It models us compassion and grace. May the Lord not hold it against them. And this is the absolute heart of it. Our primary source of strength is not our brothers and sisters in Christ, as much as we love them. It's the Lord. And then finally, when we get our strength from the Lord, that releases us to be thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you for your grace to us, that you love us, that you save us, that you gather us together. Lord, we pray that we will always get our strength from you, that we recognise that you are walking with us in, in our weakness, that you hold on to us and that you will bring us home.
And I pray that that frees us up to love other people and to love other people generously. Amen.